a nice Star Trek uh, lunchbox in the background there. Yeah, it's signed. Signed by Nichelle Nichols. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. When I was working at NASA Goddard, mm-hmm. she came, I think it was 2012, and gave the Martin Luther King speech that year. Wow. And it was amazing. So I got to meet her. She signed my lunchbox, and I gave her some astronaut ice cream and a triple. <laughs> That's a pretty good trade. So imagine me as a young graduate student, fresh off of passing my qualifying exam and nervously awaiting my chance to share my research with the broader scientific community for the very first time. Now all these conferences that people used to go to in the before times when we could all gather in one location indoors together usually start with an evening social, the night before the first talks begin, where people mingle amongst one another, having flown in from various academic institutions around the world to catch up with their colleagues over hors d'oeuvres and drinks. But this is my first planetary science conference ever. I have no friends from past appointments, no distant collaborators whom I'm eager to see face-to-face, no former students or former mentors to chat with about the latest gossip in the field. I'm just alone, in a room full of strangers. Until I see something I recognize. Not someone, something. A Starfleet comm badge. It sparks a conversation, because not even I, a lifelong Trekkie, had even thought of wearing a Starfleet comm badge to a planetary science conference. The wearer tells me that they are also a grad student, also studying Titan's atmosphere, the subject of the project that I'm debuting at this meeting. They tell me that their name is Darsa Donnellan, and just like that, I'm not alone anymore. Darsa is now a professor of physics at Gustavus Adolphus College, and it's not just a Star Trek comm badge anymore. Darsa is well known across campus as the professor who comes to class like it's a cosplay parade at a sci-fi convention. Today on Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, we talk to Darsa about how teaching and cosplaying are really two sides of the same coin, how Darsa built their famous head-to-toe Borg outfit, and how they're working with NASA to revamp space science curricula. Darsa is also the focus of a new Awkward Family Photos documentary that premiered at Sundance earlier this year. So here we go. Resistance is futile. Professor Darsa Donnellan, welcome to Strange New Worlds. Thank you for having me. Of course. So you're a professor of physics at Gustavus Adolphus College, and you are very famous for using your love of science fiction and 
Star Trek and cosplaying to engage your students in your physics classroom. So can you start by giving me a few salient examples of, of this, especially how you might use Star Trek in particular as a teaching tool? There, there's many times when students are working on a certain subject and I'll say, hey, let's watch this clip from Star Trek. Sometimes I'll also bring in Rick and Morty as well because it's funny. Mm-hmm. I always make that, this is what you should watch before you come to class. Uh, and I like to dress up in cosplay for certain things and, and and goes beyond Star Trek. I'll usually dress up as the Borg when it's Halloween because that's the, the best time to be the Borg. Uh, if we have class on May 4th, I'll dress up as Princess Leia. When we do an activity in one of my labs for my astronomy class on um, searching for galaxies. So then, of course, I have to dress up from Galaxy Quest. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Um, but I'll also dress up as people as well. So when I do my lectures on spectroscopy and I like to go through some of the diversity in astronomy that goes beyond dead white men. I'll dress up as Annie Jump Cannon, for example, and Mm -hmm. that's a lot of fun for the students. And I'll do my whole lecture dressed up as that, go through all the greats that helped us through spectroscopy and teach them the right way to remember the mnemonic (laughs) O-B-A-F, (laughs) O-B-A-F-G-K-M. Yes, that's it. Yeah, the old way. People said it was, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Mm-mm. No, that's not how we remember it in my class. The correct way is only boys accepting feminism get kissed meaningfully. <laughs> I love it. That is how I'm going to teach it from now on. Because that the, the old way. Are you, old... you going to dress up as Annie Jim Cannon as well? Uh, tell me what I, what that entails, and I will see if I can scrounge up the correct <laughs> uh, garb. A lot of it is I just watched what she's wearing in the the pictures of her studying the data. And I'm like, wait, I have some stuff similar to that from steampunk festivals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's really wonderful, uh, especially the Annie Jump Cannon part, because, you know, a lot of these early female scientists who are pioneers in their field are sort of excluded from history, from what we learn and from our textbooks and uh, from the normal curricula in college and high school when we learn about how the science was developed uh, many, many decades ago. So to bring that to the forefront and to actually cosplay as that real life historical figure and say, look, she was there and she was making these discoveries and she really influenced and and made the fields what it is today is just so powerful. That's really amazing. I've taken many physics classes and I'm sad to report that not once did any of my professors dress up. <laughs> so from your perspective as as the professor who who dresses up, what do you think that adds to the learning experience? What what did a student like myself really miss out on? It certainly makes the learning a lot more fun. I've had uh, several videos of my lectures being shared on Snapchat amongst the students. Uh, I guess now it's only a matter of time until they end up on TikTok. Yeah. (laughs) That would be fun. Uh Um, I guess being able to take a step back from the content, because sometimes we always push, well, we have to get all this content in, content, content, content. And it's like, 
you know, students are capable of learning some of the content on their own. There's lots of great videos out there. Like I love crash course physics and crash course astronomy. I often tell the students, watch those before you come to class. It's going to make it a lot nicer to sink in and they've got great animations and those videos are perfect. So I do not need to reinvent them. But being able to kind of get into that place of what was it like at the time when people were doing this science and really get an understanding of, of how it came to be, what it's like to think like a scientist, the barriers those scientists have to overcome. And when they get really interested in more of that liberal arts experience of the science, then I think they gain a larger appreciation for that science and start to understand it better because they're much more interested. And you mentioned that you sometimes ask students to watch a clip or an episode of Star Trek mm -hmm. before coming to class. Can you give me an example of one of those times and what that Star Trek episode would prepare them for in terms of learning some kind oh, of physics sure. material? So if we're learning about gravitation, we have so many examples are we're going to have a, a satellite going around Earth and let's calculate how fast that's going or the period or whatever that is. But you know, those are those very traditional examples and they can get boring after a while. So I'll be like, okay, let's think about something we actually have to use in the fields of science, especially if we're going to shoot a rocket carrying a satellite to Saturn, we're not gonna go straight towards Saturn. We gotta go backwards and get a gravity assist from Venus first. So, you know the episode when Star Trek, or when Picard has to maneuver his way through the asteroid field, and he's like, okay, well, maybe we can get a gravity assist from this asteroid to get out. <laughs> ah. so, I think that's a very good clip of that and showing how that's useful. Sir, the gravitational attraction of the various masses has reduced our velocity by 8%. By my calculations, we no longer have sufficient momentum to clear the debris field. Mr. Data. The asteroid's gravitation is drawing us closer. Velocity is increasing. Velocity is still increasing. Now at 219 meters per second. Starboard aft thruster. You have used the asteroid's gravitational pull as a slingshot. Excellent. If I'm doing lectures on the sun, then I like to show the episode when Dr. Crusher is teaming up with with all those other scientists, which and I'm especially nuts over there being a Klingon scientist, like, yeah, you get it, girl. <laughs> and they're all talking about the sun and how much shielding they have to have. And I'll be like, okay, now let's think about how amazing this invention was. And then we'll go talk about how hot the corona is. Mr. Data, what is our heading? Bearing 271 Mark IV, sir. She is headed into the sun's corona. Monitoring external temperature. 
External temperature 0.8 million kelvins and rising. Beverly, what do you hope to accomplish? I think Dr. Rager was right about his shield. The only reason it failed is because it was sabotaged, and I'm going to prove it. But you can't be certain of that. You're betting your life on a hypothesis. I'm not wrong. External temperature, 1.9 million kelvins. Sir, the shuttle is entering the corona. Beverly, what's happening? I'm all right. Computer, shield status. Metaphasic shield holding. All systems within normal operating parameters. Congratulations, Dr. Rega. You did it. Those are examples of episodes from Star Trek that I have never thought to use. Um, I've used Star Trek on occasion as a teaching tool as well, but never those two. I guess maybe because I don't really teach things like gravitational assists or, or the temperature of the corona of the sun, but that's really awesome. Well, when, I, when we have the Pluto debate in class, I have them watch the Rick and Morty episode where Jerry gets uh, brought to Pluto because he insisted on Pluto being a planet. Mm-hmm. Where do you fall on this debate between planethood and not? <laughs> I have a bumper sticker on the back of my car that says honk if Pluto is a planet. And I think that can be taken either way. <laughs> either someone's going to be like, yeah, and start beeping at me, which has happened on one occasion. Or people will say, oh, I'm not supposed to beep. yeah i guess it it can be helpful uh Mm -hmm. or detrimental depending on the situation yeah um how do your students respond and react to your cosplaying in class do you ever get students who are like i don't know about this like i've never watched that show what is she doing or do you get a lot of uh enthusiastic response i get a lot of enthusiastic response um if there's ever been a student that's just like, what is going on? Uh, they have not expressed it outwardly. Um, so usually when they're just, when they're like going, oh my gosh, and like doing their, their Picard face palms, it's because <laughs> of something I have on a lecture slide. Like, you know, there's a picture of Newton that I write, the baddest dead white guy of them all. But then in small fun underneath, I write, probably died a virgin and and those are the things that they're just like oh my gosh (laughs) the dressing up that's dressing up in costumes that's perfectly fine Mm -hmm. that's i think that's considered normal to them as well they they know what they're getting themselves into when they sign up for my class yeah i'm sure it's a it's a much talked about thing on campus and i think it's pretty empowering too right to let the students know that it's okay to express themselves and to be different Mm -hmm. in a a sort of way. Yeah, it it really is. And I think that's been very helpful. A lot of students have even commented to me about their mental health and certain things that I do that have helped that. Uh, I know for me, and probably like a lot of us science nerds growing up, is I was very shy. And were you very shy? I was quite shy, especially (laughs) in elementary and and middle school. Sort of started to break out of that a little bit in high school Mm -hmm. and college, but oh yeah, very, very terrified of getting Mm -hmm. up in front of the class or or raising Mm -hmm. my hand or really saying anything in front of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's how I felt. And it was, it took a long time for me to sort of get over this stage fright to be noticed. 
even if I'm not on stage. When I had to start teaching, which happened once I was in grad school, because that's how we get our stipends, I was nervous about things like, oh, what if this does not go well? I know how I get with things. But I immediately blossomed at that because I enjoyed it and it was a good time. And I kind of thought about it like a performance. Or when I go to sci-fi conventions and I'm in costume and I like to get in character, it's so easy to talk to everybody else that's there. I mean, we're all a bunch of nerds, so maybe that makes it easy. <laughs> um, but having people like getting excited, like, oh, you're doing this character. And, and people just thinking you're so cool without even knowing everything about you. So I was like, okay, I can take that performance aspect I get when I do cosplay and bring that into the classroom. And I treat teaching like it is a performance. And then I, I'm so happy. I'm the most happy when I'm in front of the classroom. And uh, you would have no idea how introverted I am. I seem much more extroverted once I'm there. And I guess the way my demeanor is and everything, a lot of students will raise their hands and ask questions and not be afraid. And I also point out all the mistakes I made too. Like, oh, I used to think this when I was in school learning it or make those mistakes in front of them and be like, whoops, well, you're going to see more of that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that parallel between cosplaying as a performance and teaching as a performance. And when you're at one of these large sci-fi conventions and you're in costume, yeah, you are sort of inhabiting some other personality. And when a a shy, nerdy student stands up in front of the classroom and starts teaching, they're also inhabiting some other kind of personality. And to some degree, almost every teacher is is cosplaying is putting on a performance like you say and so you're you're just taking that to the next level and really blending the two and putting on a costume when you mm-hmm. teach it as well yeah i even learned some tips from the the theater departments and schools i would go and talk to the theater students i'm like okay how do i project my voice and and just ways of making sure you look at everybody those are things that we do not get trained to do in science but there's other people in other departments that are doing that and, and doing it so well. So just getting any of that exposure is really great. I completely agree. One of the most important classes that I took in grad school was a class in the theater department. It was called Storytelling for Scientists. It was mm-hmm. actually taught by Professor Brian Brophy, who was an actor who was on Star Trek. One episode, he played Bruce Maddox in the TNG episode, Measure of a Man. But now he's theater arts director at Caltech. And so I was drawn to that class mainly for that reason that I would, you know, my teacher would, was a Star Trek star, <laughs> but I ended up learning so much about the art of delivering a, a good story and being in front of people and what it takes to really draw them in emotionally, uh, because that's the first key. If you want to convey any knowledge to somebody, you need to make sure that you have their full attention. And I thought that that was so, so important and so enriching because we don't get taught that anywhere else. Like we're just being trained as little researchers, but then by the time you become a professor like you are right now, all of a sudden your main job is to teach people and you're like, wait, but nobody actually told me how to do this. You, you've luckily had that experience from theater and from cosplaying 
to go into that space and be that amazing, enthusiastic teacher. But I feel like so many physics professors or professors of any kind really don't. So you're definitely- oh, We should have a workshop. We should. Yeah, we should definitely put on a workshop. <laughs> Wear your favorite sci-fi costume and come to learn how to teach science. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, you're so passionate about teaching. What, what would you say is your personal teaching philosophy? What makes a good physics teacher? I'm trying to remember the different things I've written. Like I've written my teaching philosophy when it was to get my job and it was very proper. Uh, there was also one I wrote to get an award in, in grad school when I got this award for being the best TA in the whole school. Yeah. And, the, and you have to write something and I'm like, all right, they told me I was nominated and now I have to write this. I don't know what to do. So I was just so playful with it because it was my first time doing one of those things. And I wrote, my philosophy of teaching is that I want students to learn. <laughs> and then I went <laughs> off from there and then talked about, well, I also want them to have fun. And yeah, it was pretty cheeky, but I got the award. So that worked out nice. But a, a lot of that is that, you know, we want students to learn and what are those best techniques. So I will pay attention with what is the current literature in physics and astronomy education research. And there's a lot of really good techniques. And then I just adapt them and make them my own. But a lot of it is just having fun and making it a very social experience. I do not want coming to my lectures to be students watching me talk at them with my back mostly towards them while I'm writing on a board. I'll use, I can use lecture slides because my handwriting is awful and I really cannot look at them and look at what I'm writing at the same time. So I find that's very helpful. And I may come in with just 10 slides and most of it is discussion based. They don't need to watch me derive every single equation, nor do they need to watch me do 10 different examples. We might just cover one example, maybe we'll get to a second one, but we break that all down into a series of questions where we'll say, well, what are we doing? What are we looking at? What is the physics in this? Until we finally go, oh, then we just do this and it's solved. And being able to break something down and having this conversation with each other, or I, I try to make it so, I better be talking less than 50% of the time and have it mostly be students talking. That really helps because I love that collaborative expert. Now, you know, I do hear about, well, Isaac Newton came up with all these things during the plague and he was alone. That's great. I also heard Isaac Newton was an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when it comes to learning, I really think being social with it, having students talk to each other, and I'll see these heated debates that they get into. They're like, no, it has to be like this. And that's where a lot of the learning comes in. It's just fun to stand back and watch. Right, yeah. I, I love that you prioritize the social aspect of learning and the fun aspect of learning as well. And I'm sure the sci-fi plays into both of those. But yeah, that that social aspect, that self-learning that you're promoting for the students you know when you're trying to teach somebody physics like you said you know watching somebody else do it at the blackboard is one thing thinking about it and debating about it and trying to do it yourself is a completely different thing and there's all those skills they get to pick up that are going to be useful for whatever jobs they have and I think also if they're able to think on their own and 
figure things out on their own because they are self learners. That's also going to prepare them more for grad school or industry or anything they want to do. So what would you say is the most rewarding thing about being a physics teacher? Oh my gosh. Probably when I see that look in a student's eye that they figured it out mm -hmm. and they're so proud of themselves. Yeah, it's magical. I, re I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I know you're working with the American Association of Physics Teachers and NASA's Space Science Education Consortium. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about your work with them? Yeah, I really love that work. So in this work, what we try to do is we take research-based things, stuff that people are researching. We've researched past research in astrophysics, planetary science, earth science, and we turn these into lecture tutorials and labs and all kinds of fun things that's, that teachers can then use in the classroom to teach physics. We have stuff for high school physics, introductory, college physics, and upper level stuff. Initially, it was started as part of the heliophysics consortium, but then it, that was so successful that it's branched out to say, you know, we should make it space physics. So we've been doing a lot of cool things. One of my favorites that we recently came up with is uh, it's on planetary magnetism. You could use it as a, as a lab or tutorial, whatever you want, and still use it from teaching at home if people have to learn from home. So you can get this app on your phone that has an AR for measuring magnetic fields and it'll just like put little arrows wherever the direction is pointed and tell you how big it is. So you can just look at where are you on the planet and whether you're in the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere or the equator, that arrow is going to point different. That's fun. And then we'll, we'll have them take a plastic ball and we'll have them create one where there's, it looks like earth. So we got a north pole and a south pole magnet inside of a plastic ball and they'll measure around it and be like, yep, okay, that's like on Earth. So it really helps me understand why the magnetic field lines point certain locations. And then what we like to do is take a plastic ball or just put random magnets in different places. It may have multiples of one pole. We don't make any monopoles, obviously. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> and we'll say, okay, well, now think about this one. And part of the reason about thinking about those magnetic fields it's so interesting because we could say, well, here's some information we have on Mars where it just has these scattered random magnetic fields. Nothing quite substantial as Earth. And then we'll bring that back into habitability and we'll say, so if we're looking for, for extrasolar planets and we're doing this using a technique where we try to measure their magnetic fields, what type of structure in a magnetic field would we want to look at to determine should we spend more time studying this planet as a possibility for it being habitable? Mm, that's really cool. Um, mm -hmm. It's fantastic that you are helping to develop all of these tools and activities for people to use all around the world, really. Um, mm -hmm. That's super yeah. awesome. It's are a you, lot of fun. Are you going to sneak any Star Trek into there? I, everybody in the group is a Star Trek fan, so that works out. So I'm going to find my ways to do that and be like, hey, I have a suggestion to edit now that we, you know, first we got to make sure it works, and then we can sneak in the Star Trek afterwards. <laughs> Fantastic. Maybe in a footnote or something, watch this episode for more tips or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
actually learned something really cool about some of the, the material we created at a workshop we ran this summer. I did one of the demos where we show students how an eclipse works, and I did it just using, um, especially if you have to teach at home. Mm-hmm. I took a 30 centimeter ruler, two binder clips, two toothpicks, you could use spaghetti if you didn't have toothpicks, and some Play-Doh, and I made it to scale model of the earth and moon. And I'm like, and then you can just take a light, the light from your cell phone works fine. I went in a dark room because it was raining outside. So I couldn't actually use the sun and just showed how if everything's leveled up, there's a little shadow of the moon going across the earth. But if it's not quite at the right angle, because we do have that five degree difference from the ecliptic, we may not get one. And one of the teachers that was in the workshop, she's like, this is great. She teaches in Arizona or New Mexico, somewhere in the, in the Southwest. And she said that the indigenous students at her school are not allowed to view an eclipse. That's part of their religion and their culture is that they can never actually view one. And then there's debate on whether they can look at a picture of one. So how can you describe how an eclipse works if you have students that culturally and religiously, they're not allowed to view it, but you can make a model with a ruler and Play-Doh and you can explain to them how it works. So she was so excited because like, yay, now I can, I can explain to these students how that works. They do not have to miss class. So coming up with more inclusive techniques that we can use for teaching is also really exciting. That's wonderful. And really in that Star Trek spirit of inclusivity. It is, yeah. So I'm going to switch gears and ask about the documentary, if that's all right. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, so there's this wonderful Awkward Family Photos documentary that features you, uh, which Mm -hmm. I got a sneak preview of. So thank you very much for that. (laughs) I loved watching it. Um, (laughs) My first question is, when does the documentary come out and how can people see it? It has premiered at Sundance this past January. So that was its original release. Um, As far as being available to the public, that is a process that's still in the works that the directors and producers for that are keeping track of and occasionally I go, hey, what's the word on that? Um, I know at the time of Sundance, they had several different streaming platforms that were interested because they eventually want to make a whole series of awkward family photo documentaries about other people's awkward families and their photos. But I think the pandemic kind of slowed down some of that progressing quickly. Uh, So I don't know exactly when it's going to come out, but eventually we'll probably see it on something like Netflix or Hulu or just YouTube. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully sooner rather than later Mm because it's it's super cool. So yeah, uh, this documentary is about recreating these amazing awkward family photos, um, you know, people when they were kids and then now grown up and trying to go to the exact same location with the exact same lighting and the exact same poses and orientation and taking that picture again. Uh, So your awkward family photo was uh, you and your sisters on a beach and the sky is Mm -hmm. blue and the sun is shining and your sisters are are in regular swimwear 
your youngest sister even has this very cute green sand bucket. Uh, and then yeah. you're kind of off to the side, uh, covered head to toe in, in black, in full goth garb. And it's quite a stark contrast. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> in the yes. documentary, uh, we find out that you're a triplet, which I did not know. Um, mm -hmm. And one of your triplet sisters says of you, if you wore pigtails, she wore five. If you had one scrunchie, she had 10. It wasn't to outdo, <laughs> it was to do different. So Darso, where do you think your desire to be different comes from? Oh gosh, that's a tough question. Maybe, maybe it does come from being a triplet. When we were younger, we were always dressed exactly alike and I believe it was not until we were in, I think, fifth grade. Fifth grade was when our mother let us start to pick out our own clothes and dress however we wanted. So finally being able to, I guess just one thing, choose my own clothes, but not also wearing the same thing as my sisters. Maybe I just got a little carried away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was never shy about accessories. Mm -hmm. I guess I've always been a little eccentric too. Yeah, we already talked about how, you know, as, as kids, we were both a little bit shy, both nerdy science geeks. Uh, in the doc, you described yourself, your younger self as an outcast. And there was even this time in school when you had food thrown at you in the cafeteria. And you said that it was really scary to be noticed, especially when you wanted to be invisible. And I feel like mm -hmm. Star Trek and science fiction in general often provides a safe haven for those who feel a little bit left out and those who feel a little bit different. How did you discover Star Trek when you were young and did it serve that kind of purpose for you? Yeah, I remember watching Next Gen when I was a kid whenever it was on, I'd be like, oh, this is so cool. And, you know, I'm so little, I don't really know all the history. I just like, oh, they're in space. This guy's a Klingon. This guy's an android. And it was just always so cool to watch. I remember some of my favorites from when I was a kid. There's the episode where Picard's in the turbo lift with the, with the children and it gets stuck and they got to climb out. And yeah. I was just thinking how cool those kids were that they got to go on the Enterprise and do this program. And I also remember really enjoying the episode when Picard and, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember everybody's name now, <laughs> Ensign Rowe and... Um, is this the one where they become kids? They become kids, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, they all become kids, and just how funny that was. Yeah, that's a great episode. You're my number one dad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I grew up with Star Trek Voyager, so I was always very jealous of Naomi Wildman because she was a kid who grew up on Voyager in the Delta Quadrant, and I thought, mm -hmm. wouldn't that be the greatest thing to grow up on a starship? be exploring the unknown every single day. Yeah, and when, she, and when they're getting back to Earth and she's like, why is everybody so excited? This is my home. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I really love the Lower Decks episode of Voyager because I thought that was cool that they had their own as well and really getting a feeling for the people on the ship. Like, there's the guy that's super smart and like, oh, don't have time for everybody. And there's the ensign that's, she's so she struggles with insecurity and wondering whether or not she's good enough. And I remember relating with her so much. I was like, yeah, 
I think that all the time because we all suffer imposter syndrome and they had a character there suffering from imposter syndrome and you know this this was coming out at the right time for us because gosh what was it 95 when it came out yeah so this is this is coming out um when I'm in middle school and it's airing while I'm in high school as well so having these episodes come out at the right time for me and having this female lead and she rose to the rank of captain through science rather than command that was such a big deal Voyager's my favorite series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely a great one. And and Janeway is just such an awesome leader. I know. Every time someone says to me, Kirk or Picard, I go, Janeway. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, and there's plenty of Borg in Voyager too. Um, <laughs> oh, I love the Borg episodes. It was definitely Voyager that I love the Borg in Next Gen, but Voyager Borgs, that's when I was like, I'm making a Borg cosplay. That's exactly what my next question is. So yeah, let's talk about <laughs> developing your world famous Borg costume. Um, world famous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Galaxy wide famous. <laughs> I thought it was just like a North America famous. <laughs> uh, yeah, so why why did you choose the Borg? Um, is it because they were sort of the steampunk goth of Star Trek? Or what attracted you about being a Borg? I think that there's probably definitely a little bit of that steampunk goth vibe that is so fun. Um, but I think a lot of it also is they're a collective that strive for perfection. And I'm like, I'm a triplet. I'm part of a collective. Mm. And that whole idea of striving per, for perfection, and this was at the time when I just wanted to start making it, that I, I started creating it while I was in grad school and I was working at, at Goddard at the time. And just being surrounded by all these smart people and going through my imposter syndrome again and like, why, why can't I just be like the Borg and just go up to somebody and there, I have all of their knowledge. I think some of it was just more almost like, I wish I was a Borg. <laughs> uh, though, which is strange because I also love my individuality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's so interesting. But there are certainly times, I guess, whenever I was feeling the most insecure, I did not look towards my individuality for what I wanted. I would go into that imposter syndrome vibe and just be like, I just... I just want to be a Borg. <laughs> yeah, this Borg outfit of yours, it looks really, really cool and really, really professional as well. Can you tell me about creating the costume? Like, what are the different pieces made of and how long did it take to, to make? So it's actually mostly made of recycled material. There's it's a green a, Borg. <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's very sustainable. Gosh, I need to wait until it's the 10-year anniversary of it so I can do one of those 10-year, here it was when it first came out and here it is now, because the first version I look at and I go, yeah, that kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was still so excited at the time to have my Borg costume. And um, over time, I've just kind of slowly worked on it, and it's usually right before a convention. And then I'm spending several hours on it and not sleeping. But when there's not a convention going on or I'm not prepared to wear it for something, it's in a bin in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had to say the total amount of time, 
probably at least a few seasons worth of Voyager because that's usually what I'd have playing. <laughs> so total time, maybe the whole series at this point. And the base of it now is created from the inner tube of bike tires. Wow. And I got those from a bike shop because when they change out people's inner tubes, they throw them out and they had so many. And I was like, can I have those? Like, I guess I really want them. And I would cut them open and there's all this powder in it. So I had to wash off the powder, let it dry. And then to make sure that it molded properly, because I was like, can I run rubber through a sewing machine? Probably not. I would um, hold it around me wherever I, I was trying to fit. And then I'd get another one on top of it and just used Gorilla Glue. And I just wait for it to finish drying. And then I'd get another one on. So it, it took quite some time to get the bodice all together, but it is very form fitting. So it is my exact shape. And then I added other things onto it. So any little things I would find that were really cool looking. A lot of the time when I was working on this, I was in grad school at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. And we have, have this really cool shop there called the Repurpose Project. And people just bring things they don't want anymore. And some of it's so random. It's just like, I don't know what this is, but it looks neat. And you go in and it's pay what you will. So I'd go in there sometimes and be like, oh, this looks kind of cool. And this is neat. So I also have chopsticks built into this, shin guards. I have a black jump rope cable. That was cool. I found one that was black. Um, <laughs> there's a black cabinet liner. And actually, the costume's just so hot with the base being rubber that I actually had to cut out the sides and put in mesh panels because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh my God, it's too hot. Uh, especially after that first Dragon Con parade I wore it during. I was sweating so much. Uh, what else is in there? Little bits of circuits and stuff so that I can get some lights going. Random bits of plastic that I was like, I don't know what this is, but... I'm going to put it on there and anything that I thought that just helped make it look borgy. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's, there's, there's um, a tube that goes from the back of my head to the center of my spine. That's from a vacuum cleaner hose. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's a lot of hard work, first of all. And then also I love that all these materials come from sort of everyday items that you've picked up along your journey mm -hmm. from grad school all the way to where you are now and you keep adding to it it's really wonderful mm -hmm. how long would you say does it take to get into costume once you decide today is a borg day oh it used to take a long time it used to take me like over an hour maybe an hour and a half to get into it to get the makeup done but i found ways to have the costume pieced together where it's like okay what's the best way to put this on efficiently and what pieces can I leave attached to each other so I can just slide right in? And I've also found better makeups to use and gotten much faster at that. And now I can do it in half an hour. That's really impressive. Wow. Sometimes 20 <laughs> minutes. You know, when, when you hear the actors at the conventions talk about how they spend hours in the makeup chair, and they're not mm -hmm. even trying to apply the things to themselves, they're just sitting still letting somebody else apply it to them. The fact that you can actually get into your own very intricate, very professional board costume in 20 minutes is, is something to be very proud of. <laughs> 
So as a fan of the Borg, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the Borg's latest appearance in Star Trek Picard. Oh my gosh, I love that. I thought that was so cool how like they go into like the PTSD of having been a Borg for both Seven of Nine and Picard and saying how some of that's always with you and how difficult it was for Seven of Nine to connect to the Borg and get them to fight back against the, the Romulan on the ship and showing just how hard it is to be rehabilitated once you've been through those things. And I think about anybody that, that suffers from any kind of trauma that they have to be rehabilitated from and how that never never really leaves you, whether you're somebody that suffered injury in a war or you're somebody that has gone through a traumatic assault some of that's always with you and you're never going to 100% be the person that you were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was awesome for them to acknowledge that side of the Borg, the sort of Mm -hmm. the victimhood of the people who Mm -hmm. were assimilated, who are now XBs as they call them. Mm -hmm. And at the time of this recording, we are three episodes into lower decks. Would you (laughs) like the Borg to make a two dimensional appearance in the Star Trek universe? I think they will because they have them in the opening credits. That's right. Yeah. Oh, and and in the this last episode when they went into the future and talked about how the you know they're like the um, most corner cutting ensign of all times and they have a statue and you're looking at the the children. There's a child there that looks like an XB. Oh, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> the little kid Borg. <laughs> All right. I guess they have mm-hmm. already made their appearance yeah. then. Hoping for more, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> yeah, so that was cool. Oh my gosh. I, I'm so happy for Lower Decks. It's so funny. And th- there's times when when Star Trek gets a little cheeky. Um, but I think this is going to help bring in a new audience that are like, oh my gosh, this is really funny. I have to see where this comes from. And for those of us who have been with Star Trek for a while now, it's just even more hilarious because of all the in jokes like i keep thinking about like boimler humming the tng yes! theme song in, in the turbo lift and i'm like what that's awesome <laughs> oh and what about the the kirk punches <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. that was so great when uh... <laughs> i can't remember his name right now i still am getting used to the character's names yeah, yeah but the number one um ransom or something yeah oh my gosh so funny I'm, I'm really enjoying all the inside jokes and just the humor. And I think showing clips from Lower Decks is something that's going to be really helpful in the classroom now. I mean, students love the Rick and Morty clips with Pluto is a planet. So now I can say, oh, I got more cartoons to show you. <laughs> that's great. Yes. Let's hope they inject a little more science into Lower Decks and then it'll be perfect for your classroom. Well, Darsa, thank you so much for being with me on Strange New Worlds today and sharing your work and your stories with me. Um, keep being that amazing, unique human being that you are or, or assimilated human being that you are. <laughs> and, you know, your maybe, students maybe are Maybe I'm just, an XB. You may be, exactly, yes. <laughs> uh, I feel and, like once we get out of grad school, we're XBs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we still have that PTSD, right, that we need to deal with every once in a while. Yes. Uh, oh, my gosh. Well, your students are so lucky to have you, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm super lucky to have you on Strange New Worlds. So, Aww. yeah. 
That was Professor Darza Donnellan of Gustavus Adolphus College. I'm so glad I've kept in touch with Darsa since our chance encounter at my very first planetary science conference. You know, those conferences can be super intimidating for early career folks. And you might not believe it, but I was a nervous, shaking wreck before my very first talk. You'd think that science conferences, which are full of people who make a living out of being nerds, would be just as accepting of individuality as sci-fi conventions. But in my experience, it is different at a sci-fi convention, where there's a culture of cherishing individual expression. Like, if you stand out, no matter who or how or why, it's only ever in a good way. And maybe that's something that science conferences can learn from the STLVs and Dragon Cons of the world. And no matter who you are, we can all look to Darsa as an example of how to boldly and gracefully assimilate Star Trek and science into each other. Next up on Strange New Worlds, a conversation with Professor David Kipping on calculating the odds of life and the odds of intelligent life in the universe. Until then, See you out there.